Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And I am stoked to be back here. I hope you're having an amazing summer. It's been great for me. I've been going all around the country speaking to businesses about making it easy and simplifying their process. And over and over again, I'm just floored at the feedback that you guys are giving me about this podcast. I cannot wait for season three, which is going to launch in just a few short weeks. Now, this is a bonus episode, and I am so excited to share it with you. It's actually a conversation that I had with Bradley Hartman on his podcast, which is the Behind Your Back podcast from earlier in the year. At the time that we recorded this, it was towards the tail end of the NBA season, and we wanted to put together a conversation about leadership through the the lens of the NBA. Now, this aired on his podcast, but he told me I could have the audio to release to this audience here at a later time, and I felt like right now in the doldrums of summer would be the perfect opportunity to do it. So if you're an NBA fan or you want to grow in your leadership, this is going to be an amazing conversation for you. It's with Bradley Hartman from the Behind Your Back podcast and also Josh Johnson from Ivy Building Materials in Louisiana. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation, and I hope you get some great value out of it. So, Mr. Josh Johnson and Mr. Tim Reed, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. You guys know how we start. We're going to start like we always do. And especially for two individuals like yourself who have so much experience professionally and as amateurs, both of you, in the music space, I figured this would be right up your alley. Josh, can you tell me, do you remember the first album? you either purchased or received and or the first concert you attended. Yes, like it was yesterday. If, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Norwegian Beatles. I'm talking about AHA's seminal hunting high and low, featuring one of the greatest pop songs of all time, Take On Me. Willie Nelson was my first concert. Dude, those are those are two pretty solid ones. All right. Yeah. Dude, Willie Nelson's a legend. Yes, yes, yes. That's one of that's one of the better answers we've gotten. So all right. That's wonderful. And and Josh, where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, just south of Shreveport, Louisiana, in a little town called Mansfield. Mansfield. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And Mr. Tim Reed, you you were born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, correct? Yeah, that's right. From a little town called Corvallis, Oregon. Oh yeah. About an hour and a half south of Portland. Oregon State. That's right, Oregon State University. Got it. Okay. And your first either album or concert you purchased or received and the first concert you attended. Oh, man. Okay. So the first record that I purchased myself was by a punk band out of Seattle called MXPX. The record was called Let It Happen. It was a B-sides track that had 32 cuts on it. And (laughs) that was awesome. (laughs) That was just a game changer for me. It was like an introduction to pop punk music. First concert... Uh, this is this is something that literally changed my life. So 2003, I had a girlfriend that I was going to prom with invite me up to a random local show in Portland, and I almost didn't go. I was trying to get out of it, and I went and saw this band that was called The Matches. They're from Oakland, California. They were like an art pop punk band from the Bay Area, and I watched those guys on the stage. I was 16 years old at the time, and I said, I want to do that the rest of my life. It was an absolute game changer. Josh is shaking his head. So apparently the matches, they had a very wide audience following. 
we we did some run a uh, little run and warp tour and the matches were on that uh run and they were they're phenomenal to watch great yeah. lead singer great front man no yep, absolutely all right well all right that determines it we're we're going to switch over to the nba but in the future we're going to connect with you too and we're going to kind of go deep because i'm passionate and in the past i've talked in the podcast just about trying to understand how we've all been affected by this change in the music industry and going from going to vinyl to cassettes to CD. And then obviously that huge shift to digital and how so many companies as well as producers of content and musicians really kind of struggle to figure out a way to do that. And I think that's a really good bridge to our first topic here, which is the change that's happening in the national basketball association right now, and specifically how the style of play has switched so quickly. And I always think about the center for the Pacers. Guy came out of Georgetown, guy named Roy Hibbert. And seven foot tall, kind of a lumbering center. And for three or four years, he was extremely dominant. Got a $100 million plus contract. And literally less than three years later, him and everyone who's like him, which is, you know, a little bit slower, only operates within the post, can't shoot anything, three-pointer, let, let alone anything outside of 15 feet. And these guys are now obsolete and just the, the speed of change. So Josh, let me kind of kick it over to you. And when you think about this and the speed of change in the lumber building materials industry and construction at large, you know, what other parallels do you see or how do you think about in your own business the pace of change? Well, I, I think it's a really good point. Something that we have to always think about is that, you know what, uh, whether we want it to or not, change is happening all around us. Uh, it's happening at all times. Uh, so I think we've got to uh, really incorporate a sense of urgency into our business and try to project forward to the best of our abilities to at least try to anticipate how that market might be shifting or moving, uh, and then how we can um, kind of leverage where we are today for where we want to be in the future. And just like you said, you know, they made a rule. Roy, Roy, there was a rule created for Roy Hibbert, the verticality rule. <laughs> I mean, this guy was, uh, he was a big deal. And then it, like now he, he probably couldn't even be on an NBA roster. Right, exactly. And that's how fast it goes. And so I, I, it sounds very scary, but I think that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably the people who are thinking forward that could see a real opportunity in the market, as opposed to the people who are saying, you know what, we're good enough today. Uh, we're fine the way we are and let's just keep on trucking. Uh, so I, I think that really puts the onus on us to be looking forward. Tim, I don't want to speak for you here, but I got to imagine operating in the Pacific Northwest, growing up there and just seeing kind of the rise of Amazon and Microsoft up there in the Pacific Northwest. When you think about the speed of change and maybe specific to the hearth industry, what do you see those challenges are and how are you helping your own team as well as the rest of the industry really think about the speed of change? Yeah, it's crazy because I think in the last 10 years, we've seen more change than in the 25 before that. I mean, when you look at the fact that we're all ordering everything on our smartphones now, I can go to, we have Fred Meyers up here, local grocery store. They might be Kroger's out in your neck of the woods, but I can order my groceries online and for $5, have them like ready for me to pick up. We've just seen speed and convenience change everything, that the web is broken in and similar to like how these centers if they want to stay relevant now, they have to get a three-point shot. They have to get quicker footwork. They have to learn how to play an up-down tempo pace. We have to do the same thing with our business. And and so what I've been trying to do in the hearth industry is, is kind of sound the alarm bells to say we have an industry of a lot of lumbering centers that had huge contracts and were amazing for the last 
25 years, but things are changing and we've been fortunate enough to not be totally disrupted yet, but we better start adding some extra elements to our game. We can't ignore the way that web works now, the way that marketing works now and advertising, customer interactions and experiences. If we're not aware of that, we're going to be left behind. So I've just been trying to speak to the awareness because a lot of businesses that have been doing well don't think they have a problem. I mean, if you would have asked Roy Hibbert, I mean, even two years ago, what he needed to do to stay relevant, he probably wouldn't have said he needed to have a three-point shot. No, I think you're totally right. And I think for us, uh, Josh and I sitting here, when you say the lumbering center there, obviously that pun jumps out at us for our industry. And Josh, when we think about this, I always want to, number one, have a respect for the history of how these guys have been successful and what works. And when it comes to conversations and relationships that have always worked and in the future they will work. And also, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little, but I'm kind of with Tim too, where I'm coming in, I'm saying, let's be honest about what we think is going to happen. And in our personal lives, when we're all using our smartphones, we're all ordering uh, different things of different sizes from Amazon that are being shipped. We're all increasingly using Netflix These are places that do not know us. They do not interact with us, but they know us very deeply in our likes and wants. When you think about that and you think about marketing, maybe internally to your own team, Josh, are there certain things or messages that you try to send that encourage people to think differently without trying to tell them that everything has changed, the world is different, you know, and try to to go to that extreme? Sure, yeah, I I think you can get, kind of pulled into a false dichotomy of kind of like what you said, an all or none, a chicken little scenario. The truth is, is that, you know, in this business, and I'm sure Tim in your business as well, it's, it's always been about relationships. And I think that will continue to be about relationships. You know, for me, the question is, can, can we take our existing relationships and can we leverage that into maybe another platform of service, maybe something that speaks a little bit more to convenience in the way that some of these much larger companies have been able to establish and not go away from the relationship work to lean into that, to go deeper with that, but then in a sense, have an easier transition. Uh, transaction for our customer. And for me, that that's where it's got to go. Yeah. We had uh, Ryan Stensland of Pioneer Materials West based out of Colorado, drywall supplier. And he said when he talked about, and now going into 2019, they're going to send sell over 20% of their revenue online for drywall. And there's still a lot of people who say that number one, that shouldn't happen and it can't be, but it is. And, and he said, what we're doing is we are leveraging technology to enhance that relationship instead of replace it. And instead of for a lot of sales folks who said, well, wait a minute, if they can order online, what value am I bringing? Well, that's a healthy conversation to have all the time. And Tim, I'd like to ask you, in what ways in the hearth industry are you leveraging technology to really invest more time in that relationship or create more bandwidth or make it easier to enhance that relationship with the customer? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and really quick, I want to circle back to the keyword that you said, Josh, is leverage. I think that's the key is that what we need to be doing is using this new landscape of business with the web to leverage the things that have worked, like relationships, family business, company story, interactions with customers. We not replace it, but leverage it. So what we've been trying to do, I run sales teams in uh, Portland and Seattle. We have about six different locations. And so we're using technology in like a CRM system to follow up with our customers. So any proposal that we do is going to be followed up with a minimum of seven times because of 
technology that we're using. We're using technology to, to keep track of our highest priority jobs versus our lowest priority jobs. I mean, simple, simple things like that, that for us, it's just made a difference in taking the relational aspect, but growing it and scaling it because customer expectations have changed. We're all held to the same standard that Amazon and Uber have. And so whether we like it or not, we have to perform at that kind of a level. So for us, we're asking the question, how can we leverage technology to be the best communicators possible? Because I think that communication is, is the biggest game and one of the toughest games to master. No, I think that's really well said, Tim. And I'd like to transition here to another topic that I think all of us had a lot of things to say about it. And this topic was broadly defined by a single player and he will, he's going to go to the hall of fame. And as much as I dislike that fact, I understand why it is. He is the individual known as Carmelo Anthony. And in my mind, there's no bigger example of someone who can put up consistently positive stats in terms of points yet after he graduated from Syracuse, after winning the national championship his freshman year, arguably other than maybe two seasons, every single team that he was on, he was the leading point scorer and he made his team worse. And when we started talking about this, I know a lot of us got really animated and we can think of people in our own business who have this sense of entitlement based on the success that they had yet have kind of aged out of that and are not delivering value and results commensurate to what they think they are owed. And Josh, when we were talking, you had a really specific story to tell. And I thought, oh, this is great. This will be our number two topic. So uh, with teeing it up for you for there, what was kind of your story as it relates to Carmelo Anthony? Sure. So we had a outside sales rep who, let's just say I was very, very close with, had a great, had a great okay. relationship with. Sure. And wow, what, what a what a great parallel to Carmelo Anthony. Uh, enjoyed a lot of individual success. Could put up the numbers. Could go out there and um, you know perform. Uh, and he and he had success and he did well. The problem comes about when you know as as he goes and as the market changes, he didn't have the ability uh, to pivot to look in other places to maybe sharpen his technique to maybe say you know what I'm going to spend a little more time mentoring some of the younger members of the staff and that's about winning right rather than about an individual stat. If you had your pick of the, that that great consummate team player versus the Carmelo, you know I, I think 99 times out of 100 you're going to go for that team player because he makes your entire organization better. And it's not about just a single accolade. Uh, it's about a, an organization winning rather than uh, an individual. Yeah. And Tim, let me ask you with, with leading the team you do in different markets, I certainly have zero interest in knowing any specific names. However, how do you handle a player who over time has done really well, however, is very much a me first player and isn't doing much to improve the overall team and normally we kind of see some complacency kind of fall in there and some arrogance. From a sales management standpoint, that's a really tough thing to deal with. Do you have any experience with that or any recommendations? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's super, super hard. Fortunately for me on my team, I don't have anybody that's like that. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future. But as of, as of now, I don't. But we have had people in our company at different points that definitely are that Carmelo Anthony where they're a rock star salesperson. They can put up huge numbers. They're super hard workers. And, and some of the time, you know, they're honest, they're ethical. But what I found most of the time is, is they don't have self-awareness. And so because of that, 
they leave a trail of dead bodies behind them. Maybe they're nice to their customers, but they treat their inside team like garbage. Um, we've had salespeople that have put up numbers and we've tried to bring in teams to help them manage accounts so that they could go out and bring in more business. They're, they hold their customers with an iron fist. And even though there's little value that they're truly giving and managing the account, their value would be much better spent going out and getting new stuff. They will not relinquish control and they handicap themselves and the rest of the team from any type of growth. It, I mean, it honestly sucks. And in my opinion is that I, I think that as hard as it is, you got to respect the GM that makes the decision to trade Carmelo. I mean, look at Denver now versus, versus when they had Melo. They're so much better now. So much and better. actually trading him was like the beginning of Denver starting to lay the, the foundations to get better. And I think that's what you got to do as a sales leader. Yeah. And I know it's sometimes you start thinking, hey, this is really hard. This guy averages 26 points a game and eight rebounds. Yet, then you kind of start looking at some of the other stats. Well, he also has lots of energy for offense because he doesn't do any defense. And yep. Josh, let me ask you, Tim brought up this idea of sense of awareness. And I think this ability to be self-aware and to understand how others are perceiving you in your experience, do you believe this is something that can be taught and coached or is to a large degree, this is really an innate ability that you cannot either have it or you don't? That is a great, great question. And I was going to say, you know, as, as that relates to a salesman, as Tim pointed out, you know, as leaders, it's probably even more important uh, to, to be ongoing in your development of, uh, you know, who you are and your self-awareness, uh, your strengths, your weaknesses. Uh, can't, you know, I, I would say that you're going to have to, you, you have to have uh, an inkling of the talent, right? It's not, if you don't have it um, at all, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult. But I think that we all do ourselves a great favor by trying to understand where we excel and where we struggle. And then communicating that out, you know, I've sat with some of our direct reports and I've had to say, you know what, I'm really bad at this. Mm -hmm. And I, I need to let you know so that you can help me, you know, as we go forward. And I hope that in modeling that, then they're able to take that to their direct reports to say, hey, guess what, guys, I'm not so good at this. Can you please help me? So uh, I, I think it's work. At, at all times, but you do probably have to have an ounce <laughs> to yeah. get started. You know? Yeah. And Josh, I also think it's important in our own work and coaching other people and understanding ourselves. There are certain skills and abilities where a big part of it is innate and you are kind of naturally inclined to do it. But then there are other things. And for me, thinking about sales is prospecting, which a certain percent of it is pure effort. You have to want to do the work and overwhelmingly, Carmelo proved again and again and again, when it came to the effort on the defensive end, most glaring weakness, most recently with the Houston Rockets, when they were in the finals, he couldn't play. You know why? Because he didn't want to play defense. Now, he's a phenomenal athlete. He just didn't want to do it. And so I think that difference too is understanding what sort of skills and abilities we're talking about and making sure that, hey, from a culture standpoint, you got to want to be able to do the effort and we expect, expect a minimum level of effort on these key things. Otherwise you're not going to be able to be here. And Tim, I see you nodding your head. There's anything to add on this point. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a great story that, that we've had. It's one of the big things for my sales teams is that we practice like crazy. And I'm, I'm so big on the, the best way to increase productivity in your sales teams is once a week, make them practice with each other and you, the sales leader for an hour and go through feedback and criticism and help everybody get better. And, and we've had a very, very, very high 
ranking salespeople in different departments of our company come in and talk to me and say, what a waste of time it is that you practice with your team. And they're like, I'm out. I'm out talking to contractors. I'm out talking to builders. Why? And, I, and I'm sitting there saying like, you know, we are, we're taking an hour right now to sharpen the saw. And I guarantee that with time, we're going to outpace anything that you're doing because, you know, you're so busy with your nose to the grindstone that, that your blade's getting dull and dull and dull and you don't have any self-awareness to get better. I think the practice piece is just, it's so huge. And that goes back to Carmelo and Alan Iverson and, you know, whoever else that, that it is, it is the practice and the attention to the details, especially in a sales setting that grows your self-awareness. Cause if as a salesperson, if you're not self-aware, you are dead in the water. Yeah. I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that, man? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? I love that in a very simple one, uh, kind of a call and response that we practice a little bit. And I've talked to both of you guys about in our sales fundamentals workshop, one thing that we're doing is we're bringing in 360 degree cameras to record entire conversations with builders live there. And I think still the vast majority of salespeople in our industries, and Tim, if you'll allow me, my guess would be your audience will be very similar to ours. They've oh, yeah. never seen themselves on camera. And a very simple one that we just kind of pound in over and over again, yet we still see, see people struggle with this is when, I know I'm sure neither of you guys have ever heard this, but when someone says, your price is too high, that's the call. The response should be compared to what, right? Yet over and over again, if someone says, hey, your price is too high, well, compared to what? Oh, well, uh, compared. Well, now we have a conversation and we know more information about the objection Yet time and again, I'll work with folks and they'll say, you know what we really struggle with? Your price is too high. It's like, dude, that's the oldest objection available. It should be a call and response. And you get that just from practicing because when you're in the meeting, you're there, guys are staring down at you, your adrenaline takes over, you clam up. It's got to have that practice to where it's instinctual. So anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to take over this podcast on that, but I think that's something very simple that we always talk about. If the question, if, if the statement is your price is too high, the immediate answer automatically needs to be compared to what or something similar to that to keep it going. But that's let me, so good. Yeah. So let me, let me transition this. So we, we talked about culture before we talked about the culture of winning and we talked about, I think the Spurs are the greatest example. And recently on the last podcast, uh, a few ago, I talked about um, this book by Sam Walker, which is called the captain class. And they talk about the greatest teams of all time. And it came down to, the captains that they had. And they talked specifically about Tim Duncan, extremely quiet, did all the dirty work, didn't care about stats. And those went up and down year after year, depending on what the team needed. But when you think about the Spurs longevity, Josh, what do you see and how do you try to either emulate that or think about that in terms of your business, which is going on uh, the third generation? Oh, I think about the Spurs all the time. <laughs> uh, what a phenomenal organization! Uh, just from ownership to general to the general manager to the coach and Greg Popovich, uh, arguably the greatest coach of all time. And then, but to your point, you said it right. You, uh, Tim Duncan. Most people in that organization will say that the 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 best of the Spurs culture was led, modeled, and walked by Tim Duncan. He uh, was the field general who kept everyone accountable on the team. He 
led with a sort of no nonsense, uh, no prima donnas here uh, style, and that that goes back to the Carmelo point and something I've thought a lot about is that listen, we're we're not really looking for prima donnas. Uh, we want talent. We want people who are smart humble and hardworking. And if you can find those three things, wow, do you have a gym? Uh, you may not have a Tim Duncan, <laughs> right? but you've got the makings of a great, great leader on a great, great team. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, one thing I was thinking about too, I was actually texting back and forth with a friend yesterday. We're reading one of our industry magazines. And I think that the analogy of the Spurs has so much to do with good family businesses. So I've got this friend in Spokane, Washington, who runs a fourth generation family business. And they run, I mean, amazing company. No one has a story like they do. But I'm, I'm texting back and forth with them and we're reading our industry magazines. And there's this quote in a national magazine from a family business. And the quote says, Our customers like the fact that they get to work with the son and grandson of the founder. It's a great story to tell that builds rapport, trust, and loyalty, which is something that can't be purchased on the internet. And I'm texting back and forth with my buddy, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking, I love the heart behind that, but it's it's actually wrong. That, That that's like saying just because we have been the Spurs means that we'll continue to be the Spurs and that the rest of the NBA won't catch up with us. And I'm texting back and forth with my buddy and I'm like, anyone that's ever watched a a Kickstarter video has gotten the same rapport and the same trust and the same excitement that they got out of your family business. And so it goes back to the fact that the, the beauty of the Spurs is how Pop has continued to reinvent and reinvent and reinvent that team and, and it doesn't matter if the style changes as the players change, that culture, which I would say is like the family business, that winning mentality, that has not changed. And so what Pop is doing is he's taking what has worked, but leveraging it for the future. And that's brilliant. It's what family business has got to do. Yeah, I love that. And when we start talking about Pop, I think one thing and a specific example, which I am a firm believer in and practice it maybe to a fault with, with my team is this idea of candor and being really direct with people kind of goes back to the self-awareness. But if you look what happened, I guess it was a little, a season and a half ago, you had two individual players that were both all-stars. You had Kyrie Irving on the Cleveland Cavaliers and you had LaMarcus Aldridge on the San Antonio Spurs. And both of them right around the same time said, I don't like it here. Not happy. I want out. So what did Cleveland do? Cleveland kind of panicked and started calling around, and they basically gave away one of the, arguably, the best point guard in the league, ended up on the Boston Celtics. Two-way rival, also in the Eastern Conference. What did Pop do? Pop said, we're not trading anybody. You and I are going out. He said they had like a four-hour dinner, they had a couple bottles of wine, and Pop said, I think you're right. And I think all of us, especially our salespeople and our star performers, they are dying to be heard and have somebody listen to them. And Pop went in and said, you know what? He had some really good points. We can use him better. Fast forward, LaMarcus Aldridge had one of the best seasons of his career. They were also successful last year. And he's having another really fantastic season. Two very different ways kind of to approach a very similar situation. Yeah, that's so good. And man, you got to bring up LaMarcus Aldridge and rip my heart out. Oh. But <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I forgot. Yeah. No, it's it's funny though. It's funny you talk about LA because once LA left the Blazers to go to San Antonio, so that was right at the beginning of when Terry Stotts came in. And this is a great piggyback into where I was hoping we'd go is that we could swing it back to Portland because Stotts has been one of those coaches too in Portland that has grown a culture of winning. Now, not on the level of San Antonio. And frankly, I think Portland's got some problems with their GM. So not so 
Stotts is having to win with players that would have no business winning on a different team. But the beauty of what he's done with what he's been given is he's created a framework for success. And you've started to see Portland win with that a little bit. Can you go into that just a little bit more? When you say a framework of success, what do you mean by that? Well, Stotts is really funny because Terry Stotts doesn't call plays like a traditional coach does. He he creates a framework that they call the flow offense. And so basically the flow offense is a series of decisions and situations he teaches to his players and then he doesn't run plays he just holds them accountable to use the knowledge that they have to make the best judgment call i was reading this uh this article on uh is in sports illustrated a couple years ago and they had this great great quote this is from from a couple years back but they're talking about about stots and they're interviewing him about his offense and i think what he says is amazing because it shows humility and self-awareness of what it takes to win so he says quote One of the things that I like philosophically on both our random plays and our sets is that I don't know who's going to get the shot. What I want to do is create a situation that's going to cause a problem for the defense. So I like to give our players freedom to read the defense and make plays either for themselves or their teammates. That's just, I think it's amazing. It's so cool that what he's after as a leader and a coach is putting his people in a situation where they can win, but not through micromanagement. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. One one word you said there that really spoke to me was humility. As as a leader, when you when you think about Popovich, and if we we go back to the Lamarcus Aldridge situation, you know it would have been very easy to say this is not working, and you know what, you don't fit my mold, my system, so you got to go. Uh, the humility of Pop to say, you know what, I was using Lamarcus incorrectly, and I'm going to adjust what I do to put this very talented individual in in a in a place to win, in a place to be successful. I don't think everybody would have done that. I think that there are certainly some coaches out there who are a little more system-oriented uh, where it's essentially, listen, if you don't, if you don't fit within, within this system, um, you know what, it's going gonna, it's gonna to reflect poorly on me and we're not going to win ballgames. Uh, so I think that there's a nice balance between that framework that you speak of and then a little bit of humility to say, you know what, I've got something here. Let me see what I can tweak to make work. I don't want to bring it up because it rips my heart out to talk about my boy, Phil Jackson and all the success he has. But the (laughs) counterpoint to that is for him to roll in with the lack of humility to the Knicks and say, guess what? You know, what's been really successful for me, Jordan and Kobe, the triangle. You're going to put in the triangle regardless of you want to regardless how you feel about it. The coach didn't want it. The team didn't want it. And it was a disaster. And, and again, he's been extremely successful but again, this comes up time and time again, that title of the famous book, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And how do you be flexible and self-aware? And the other thing that I want to transition to, and maybe Tim starting with you, is when you look at the Clippers, all right, you look at that lineup, and I had printed it out and I forgot to bring it. It is a series of, all right, mediocre guys and no-name guys. So even folks who are passionate about the NBA you look at the latter part of their lineup and like, hmm, no idea who that guy is. He must have come out of the D-League. And yet, they have a series of guys, their key performers are all on contract years, and they are the opposite of complacent. They are hungry, and not only personally for themselves and their next year contract, but also for themselves as a team. And you look at that Western uh, conference, it's just loaded so when you think about sales, and then I'd like to go from Tim and then maybe kick over to Josh, when you look at the sales team, often our best performers can over time put together a really strong book of business, rely on referrals, and for lack of a better phrase, 
can kind of get fat and happy and they don't really want to prospect. They don't want to grow. And quite frankly, they've earned it. However, if the organization wants to grow, they need all the salespeople to grow. So how do you keep that sense of urgency and lack of complacency from settling in even when guys are really successful? Oh man, that's such a good question. You know, on the sales end, I think that you got to think about it with the way that you organize your comp structure. You know, number one is that is that you probably need to come up with a different comp for new business versus retained business. Because the whole thing is that people are going to do the behavior that you reward. And so I think that that's a big part of it, number one. You know, when I think about the Clippers, their year this year is crazy. I mean, I think about Gallinari and like, I don't know what that guy's done on any other team. He's been like the most hyped up player to do nothing. But now on the Clippers, like they're putting together some results. And what I love with it, this is something I think about a lot with my sales team is that you don't want a sales team full of A players. It's okay to have some B and some C players in your sales team because if you've got five thoroughbreds on your basketball court or on your sales team, they're going to be running so many different directions. They're going to be getting picked off by competition. It's exhausting to keep up with that. And for me personally, I won't turn down A players necessarily, but A players, unless they're in line with the direction that you're going, are very distracting. And I think that to have some B and C players that are super loyal, they love what you do, and sure, maybe their their talent isn't isn't quite as there naturally, but as a leader, what you can do is you can build the framework. So like for us, we have a seven-step sales process that we go through, and it's not rocket science, and seven steps sounds like a terrible you know micromanagement system, but it's not. It's just, it's really, really basic ideas of sales. Like step one, greeting. You know, how do you greet the customer? Step two, understand their situation. Step three, advise a solution. I mean, it's not rocket science, but it's just putting together a basic framework. And what we've found is that a good framework allows B and C players to have significant results that they'd never have in a different company. I think that's what you're starting to see with the Clippers. Even though I'm not a Doc Rivers fan, you know, those players, they have incentive. I mean, the way that they're comped out is that they've got incentive to play. And I think there's probably also a realization that, that, there are a lot of B and C players on that team that are following a framework and it's helping them win. No, I think that's really, really good, Tim. You've, you've done an excellent job kind of building your program out there. You know, for me, thinking about complacency in sales, I think that once again, you kind of peel the onion back and you get, you get to, into leadership. And for me, you know, coming in and, and, set, and, and doing my best to set a tempo and have leadership set a tempo that says, you know what, complacency is not going to hold for us here. Uh, it's not a path forward. You know, we're looking to improve the quality of life of the people we serve, but then also the people on our team. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to uh, raise each other's ceilings. And I need you on the sales, on the sales force to, uh, you know, let's go out there and get it. Let's go out there and get it today. Let's work a little bit harder. You know, it's so funny how there's, there's probably a very small talent gap you know, in terms of an NBA player, right? But when you think about a team like the Clippers or you compare them to a team like the Wizards, okay? <laughs> you know, they're, the Wizards are probably more talented than the Clippers. Yeah, but yeah, it's the unity and it's the, uh, you know, that sort of drive and that togetherness that is pushing the Clippers forward where you have the Wizards falling apart, you know, a trash fire of a team. Uh, and I just think that's really interesting how I think from a talent standpoint, the Wizards probably had the knock there. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head too. I think it's really important for all leaders to, if they are observing the situation on their team, to know that as a leader, they are implicit in it. And I always, I wrote down the note, standards of behavior. When you are very articulate and very clear about these are the standards of behavior that we expect every day, every month, and for the year, and they drive directly towards a goal. And I think, Tim, you hit it. I know when you start talking about changing comp structure and incentives, 
The number one rule of economics is incentives work. When you point your comp and your incentives and the leader says, I'm very clear, we put it on paper and we talk about them. These are the standards of behavior. Well, that's pretty simple. When people don't do them, well, you have to act on that. And when they do, you need to reward it. But when you consistently have the people or individuals not performing to those standards of behavior and you're letting them do it, well, yeah, we shouldn't be that surprised with it. Yep. Yeah. No, no, it's absolutely awesome. I mean, we found that same thing that so often in leadership, it's easy to point the finger. Why do my people do this? Why do my people do this? If only they cared like I do. And what we have to do is we have to back up and realize, well, they're, they're not me. They're not in my position. And am I comping them in a way that rewards that behavior? And a lot of the time the answer is yes. Absolutely. So let's transition to these $18 basketball socks. So I won't go too far into detail, but for about a hundred plus years, cotton tube socks have worked pretty well for everybody. And I remember distinctly, and this is, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 years ago, Nike came out. They had a few different colors on them. They had some different kind of ribbing on the inside. And each one of the socks, one had an L and one had an R. And because of the arches on our feet, the ribbing was a little bit different. And I remember laughing and I think I turned to my wife and I'm like, get this. Nike is now, instead of having me buy a three pair of cotton socks for 10 bucks, they want to sell me one pair for 18. And I was like, who do these people think they are? And this is an example of innovation and how it's going to fail. Well, fast forward, I don't know, a year or two, I own a couple pairs of those. And now it is extremely common for everyone to be buying these high-end, very specialized socks. And For me, it made me realize that this sort of innovation and the ability to go to kind of the high end and obviously increase some higher margins and to create something very different oftentimes is sitting right in front of us. And Josh, we talked about this before we jumped on the pod and just about this idea that, and again, kind of goes back to our conversation about change, is that sometimes you got to have more of these conversations to see some of this innovation that is staring us right in the face. Oh, I think so. Um, you know, when you when you think about the $18 basketball socks, which when I was in high school, I would wear six pair, you know, we'd stack them all up in all kinds of designs <laughs> and everything. So I probably had $150 worth of socks uh, on at any given time on the court, which looked ridiculous, by the way. Um, but you know, that's, that's a, that's a great move by Nike as a brand. You know, when I think about that, I think of, you know, what's the sort of value differentiation we can make as a company. Uh, whereas, you know, it used to be a $2 transaction, you know, but we're going to, we want to command a little bit more margin, but we got to be able to demonstrate that. And we got to be able to communicate that value. And for Nike, maybe it was a, a certain type of ribbing or a design element, but for us, you know, we're in a different business and how do we communicate, um, that, Hey, you know what, we're worth a little bit extra. And, uh, you know, what we're going to, we're going to bring a value for our customer. Well, it's perfect that you talk about the $18 socks because I'm, I'm an avid basketball player. And for years and years and years, I resisted the call of like the, you know, the customized left versus right socks. I know, but you know what? Now that I have them, dude, I love them. I'm not going back. <laughs> I love, they feel good. I mean, granted they're still a cotton sock, but you know what? They feel good on my feet and they make me feel good. They make me feel like. I don't know whether it's I'm affluent or I'm a better player or I look better on the court. And I think what it, it comes down to a few things. One of which is that there is something to the fact that people buy things because of how it makes them feel. They really, really do. 
And it doesn't matter if you're in the fireplace industry like me, if you're selling lumber or sheetrock or socks or shoes, but people buy because of how they feel. I mean, even in, even in the case of something that could be a commodity, you know, say you're talking about sheetrock, the feeling could be that, well, man, I just got the best deal on this. Or it could be, I'm so sick of going between these options. This just feels like the easiest way to go. You know, there's a million different reasons, but at the end of the day, people are buying based on how it makes them feel. And I think that that's what Nike has hit so, so well. And even to think about the fact that like, you could go to 7-Eleven and get a cup of coffee for 50 cents, or you could go to Starbucks and pay six times as much. I mean, maybe 10 times as much if you're getting, you know, like a Frappuccino or something, but you know, a gas station cup of coffee versus a Starbucks cup of coffee. Is it worth six times as much? That's for you to decide, not me. But I know that I go to Starbucks because of how I feel when I go in there. And and that goes to the fact that we have to be aware of, A, in our sales process, what are we doing to cultivate feelings of what we sell? It's like with fireplaces, we're talking about warmth and beauty and security and family moments and things like that. Because those are, those are feelings that the homeowner is going to have. If you're talking to a purchasing agent, that purchasing agent probably doesn't care about family gatherings in, in the context of buying sheetrock, but they do care about feeling smart. They do care about feeling like they're getting a great deal. And I think that we have to be so aware of how we tell that story. We're not manipulating, but we're telling a story that's specific to the audience. Nike's done that and they've proven that they can charge $18 for a pair of socks. Yeah. And let me ask you, Josh, when we talk about innovation, uh, you and I really kind of connected as we were talking about kind of the changes and fast forward 10 years in our industry, what does it look like online and off? And how do you really maintain what I think our industry is extremely strong at, which is relationships and conversations do you have any recommendations or tips or things not to do when it comes to encouraging your team to think differently or to more broadly think more innovatively about what you're doing the way, hey, we've always been successful doing this, but how do we combine this with what we think some of these changes that are likely to happen in our industry, how do we change to meet those in the coming years? It's a really, really good question, and 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 timely. You know, when you look at the store, the brick and mortar closures this year, it, it's just phenomenal. I mean, how many different organizations this year decided, you know, enough's enough. Uh, we're tired of getting taking this beating, and we're getting out. You know, you're talking about great companies. You know, one of the one of the things I think about is the sort of Sears catalog. I mean, everybody knows the Sears catalog. What better company? could have been Amazon.com other than, I mean, Sears was in the e-commerce business before there was an e-commerce business. Things are going to change. We cannot stay the same. We're going to have to get a little bit better every single day. And if we can continue to do that, I think we'll be fine. Now, if not, you you could be looking at a Toys R Us scenario, or, you know, you just go down the list right. of great companies who, for whatever reason, you know, what was, were not able to make that, uh, turn that boat just enough. I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I always got every month. I got the catalog of East Bay. Did you guys ever buy shoes off yes, East Bay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I'd get so excited, and I'd show my mom some sales, and every now and then she'd buy them. Now, fast forward. If you ever read the book by uh, Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, when they talked about Zappos, uh, lots of investors and initially the public said, "No one's going to buy shoes online. You got to be there. You got to touch them. You got to feel them." And they they went through this process where initially they started believing that, and then someone said, "Wait a minute." East Bay has been doing this for a couple decades and they've been successful, which raises two different questions. Number one, it's already happening. How did we forget that? And number two, how did East Bay become Zappos? They were doing it. And 
Tim, the thing that I'm kind of fascinated about specific to your space is, and I was buying uh, fireplaces and I was buying things related to that for the Midwest before I left Pulte. And we heard these stats and we believed them and we talked to customers and we believed them that all other things being equal, we would rather invest in having a fireplace inside our home. And we knew that. Yet, year over year, we would spec less of those. So that's one. And then you see this other trend toward this innovation to having fireplaces outside, typically in the backyard of homes, which seems like a a booming industry. And when you look at those sorts of things there, I'm just kind of curious, real generally, your thoughts on where innovation fits in there and how your industry can take more advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, there's huge advantage that we can take. And and really what it is, is I think it comes down to what you guys talked about with innovation, that in, in my industry right now, generally speaking, we don't need to innovate our products as much as we do our delivery and the way that we give information. And so, it, you know, going back to Sears, like Sears should have been Amazon. You know, when Uber came around, whoever had the biggest cab company in New York should have become Uber, but they didn't. And so that's what I'm looking at right now in the fireplace industry is, you know, Uber's not any different. Amazon's not any different. It's, there was already a catalog. There was already a subscription model. There was just a slight tweak in the way that information was presented and given that set the world on fire. And I think that that's where a lot of innovation is, is a lot of innovation is like, it's right in front of you. It's the things that you're already doing, but repurposing, communicating a little bit differently, and and maybe looking around to other industries and pulling in a, a, a little mechanism here or there to change your delivery method that will set the world on fire. So Bradley, to your point, for, for us in the world of we know that people want fireplaces inside the house. We know that outside the house is a great upsell that makes people feel really excited about where they live. Why isn't it happening? It falls on us and it falls on us in the fact that buying a fireplace is confusing and difficult for everybody, for the contractor, for the purchaser, for the homeowner, for everybody involved. And so the innovation I'm convinced that our industry needs and that I want to be a part of is changing the way that that content is delivered to make it simple for people to understand how a fireplace helps their home and what are the steps that it needs to, that need to happen for it to be get taken care of at the homeowner level, at the purchasing level and at the contractor level. And I think that's, what's going to set our world on fire. Yeah, that's great. Um, But just to piggyback on that, I mean, I think something that we all know uh, is that how do we make the purchase easier for our customer? You know, whatever that is, whatever we're selling, how do we take the pain points away? You know, Chick-fil-A is so good at that. They're always looking at their pain points. Uh, You know, I I like to think that that's our competition. You know, when it comes to customer service is that when you walk into uh, that Chick-fil-A that just all the attention to detail that you see, okay, I mean, that, that just speaks volumes. And it's a reason why they're a leader in that field. But for us and what we do, you know, we've got to start thinking about, you know, what makes it hard uh, to to purchase a house package? What makes it hard to purchase a door, a window? And let's think through those things and let's try to let's try to find the solution that's going to make it the easiest. And then to Tim's point, how do we communicate that and tell our story in that process? That, that is at the end of the day, you know, who's going to win? Who can make it easy for the customer? Yeah, you just nailed it, Josh. That's it. I mean, I, I think that we got to go all in on making it easier and easier and easier. We have a tagline on, on the podcast that I have that says, we have to make it so stupidly easy to do business with us that there's no excuse not to. And if we if we look at it, it's the way that all of our consumer behavior habits are. The reason that we use Netflix instead of Blockbuster is because it's easier. The reason that we, you know, buy something on Amazon versus drive to Best Buy is because it's easier. And 
we've been fortunate in our businesses that they're brick and mortar, they're family businesses, and there's some expertise to it. So we haven't been totally disrupted yet. But in the same way that Sears should have been Amazon, we need to be thinking about what can I be doing to leverage what I have and think for the future as opposed to just being swept away? That's awesome. Well, hey, I want to be respectful of both your guys' times. And there's this one topic that I'm dying to get to. And Tim, I'd like to start with you. And this is the story over the last kind of five years or so of the Philadelphia 76ers. They had this GM, Sam Hinkie, come in and he installed something called, quote unquote, the process. And the process, to clear everything out, was we're going to be terrible. We're going to lose on purpose for many years in a row. And we're going to get the number one pick multiple years in a row. And then, voila, after some pain, we're going to be awesome. And largely, that process has been extremely successful as they're sitting here today. Now, Sam Hinkie, of course, which is another podcast, Josh, we talked about. We could just go into the letter that he wrote <laughs> when, after he got canned. Uh, but what really resonated with me about that story was, while I believe in candor and believe in transparency, none of us can forget that we are in the storytelling business and we're all marketers and we have to think about the story we're telling. And when Sam Hinkie came out and said, no, we're basically going to be deliberately try to lose a ton of games and guarantee we get the first round, the first selection in the NBA draft. And obviously, if you're paying several thousand dollars a year for courtside seats or seats anywhere, that becomes somewhat unpalatable. And he forgot he was in the storytelling business. He got canned. And now that, you know, they are successful now and are competing at a very high level in the Eastern Conference, he is no longer with them, which you could argue has made him more of a celebrity than he was before. But I think this comes back to, I think, Tim and I, for, for the idea of the story brand and Donald Miller and what he talks about. Tim, do you mind going into that just a little bit? And uh, again, taking the 76ers, if you want to or not, but going into Donald Miller's process. You know, Sam Hinkie, he had a plan and it was a, really a good one when you look at the results of it now. Uh, he had a plan to get to relevance in the NBA and he just did not do a good job of communicating that to the shareholders that were involved. So I'm a huge fan of Donald Miller and StoryBrand. They're out of Nashville, Tennessee. If you guys want a great marketing book uh, after Bradley's book on social media, make sure to pick up Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. But what, what they're so good at is they really make you think about things from the customer's perspective. And so you can take a set of facts, you know, whether it's we have a fireplace that we're selling to a customer that can make their house warm. That's a set of facts. But the story I'm going to tell is going to be different if you are a homeowner living in the house versus if you are a purchaser for a big construction company versus if you are a owner builder that's doing the job yourself. Same set of facts, different story. And that's not deceitful. It's what sales is. It's, it's showing and presenting value. And so where StoryBrand is really, really good is is helping to rethink about who is the customer that I'm going after? What are their pain points? And can I tell a story that shows a solution to those pain points? And so you go back to the 76ers and you think about, well, who did he lose along the way? Well, obviously you lose fans when you're losing and losing and losing. So if you know that your product on the court is not going to be great for a few years, you better come up with a different story. Like, hey, we got two for one beer and hot dogs uh, three nights a week. You know, we have a, we have a, four extra contests each year where season ticket holders get to come onto the court and get pictures with the players. You know, there better be a different story that's told alongside of that to show value if there's not value in the product that's on the floor. What do you think about that? Oh, I think, I think that's an excellent point. Um, 
Bradley, we had a we had a brief online interaction talking about you know what what's going to win moving forward, and you said two things. You said that it was going to be culture and talent. And as we know in this industry, uh, we're not Apple, we're not Google, we're not Amazon. Um, you know, we're not doing these outrageous numbers. So attracting talent is a difficult thing to do. I'm just going to be very honest. And so one of the ways I think we can leverage the power of storytelling is about our own organization for potential employees. Uh, you know, how we, you know, carry ourselves on social media, you know, how we lift up uh, the guy out in the yard who's done a great job today, you know, how we talk about our culture and push that out there as a story. Um, like you said, it's not deceitful. We're, we're trying to be as authentic as possible, but leveraging that to say, you know what, we know money's important, but you know what culture is too. And if you want to be a part of this team, this is what we're about, and this is the type of people we'd like to have around us. And I think storytelling can make a huge impact on something like that. Yeah, and Josh, you got two different locations, and I'm sure you are servicing a wide variety of customers from DIY to professional contractors to builders. Do you ever struggle with that all, or how do you think about kind of these subtle differences in stories that we're telling to your different customer base and across two different stores trying to make sure that they really connect with one of them and feel that, hey, at the end of the day, your business truly understands who they are and what they're trying to do? That's a great question. I think, you know, one, one of the things I really encourage is, is, is for our people and our customers to be known. So when you come into the Mansfield location, I feel it's so important to be called by your name when you walk through the door. You know, hey, Joe, how are you doing today? You know, there's not very many, if you think about it, there's not very many retail experiences where you can walk through the door where they're going to say, hey, Bradley, how are you today? Hey, Bradley, how's your father? Hey, Bradley, and so on. And so I think one of the ways that we can do that is to encourage our people to recognize, to know their customers, to go a little deeper with them, you know, perhaps as they're talking about their family, finding out about possibly their church service or their softball team or their punk band, whatever that may be, just go a little deeper with your customers. And I think that that's going to, uh, I think that's going to kind of push forward in the idea of, you know what, I'm known here. And that's huge. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And the reality is that I think C.S. Lewis said that people live into the stories that they believe. And so when you think about that, that our lives are made up of a series of stories that we believe. And so, you know, you can look back at your upbringing and, you know, maybe you you had a tough upbringing and you can live into a story about how that has crippled you for the rest of your life. Or you can actually look at that upbringing and believe a story that this has actually shaped you to go out and be a healer or to go out and, and, you know, do something because of how the experience that you've had as you were brought up. And I think that's really, really important that our customers are no different than that. And so we have the ability as salespeople to speak into them transformational stories. Now, I mean, I'm selling fireplaces, people are selling sheetrock and, and, you know, lumber and things like that. But we still have the ability, just like you said, Josh, to be known and to make a difference. And I think that where that goes to, where we get it wrong so often, and this is where StoryBrand's great, is that they talk about how people, customers, don't care about your story. They just don't. You know, oh, your your grandpa started the business? Great. Oh, your, your dad started? Okay, that's awesome. But I mean, in reality, they don't care. But what people want is they want to be invited into a story. And so the question for us is, how can we invite them into a story, into a journey that takes them to the life they want to have? And our products can be a part in that journey. And I just thought of the cheers effect, you know, that place where everyone knows your name and... 
I think maybe this is a nice little way that we can circle back to this initial conversation about change and the Amazon effect is Amazon, their business model goes out of their way to remove any humans from it, right? It's about speed. It's about ease of business, okay? If they don't want any part of Bradley walking in, you know, to Ivy's and saying, Bradley, how you doing, man? How's your wife doing? Guess what? It's our job to own this. And if someone says, well, whew, we, we might have a hundred different people come in. All right. Well, we might have to do some training and maybe there's some memorization techniques or maybe we put their pictures on the wall or maybe we do the 80-20 rule and we start with our top 25 who come in every day. Whatever that is, how do we own that? How do we replicate the cheers effect where every time we walk in, everyone's like, hey, welcome. And that goes back to how a place makes you feel. And when you feel that you're part of the family and you're gonna do that, if and when... Amazon or anyone else comes in to the LBM industry, you know what? There's a certain dollar value we can put on that because at the end of the day, the old cliche, all other things being equal, I'd rather buy from someone I know, someone I trust, and someone I like versus a giant faceless corporation. So I think that's some way we can really own it. To that point, you know, basketball is a game but it's played to win. And, you know, it's very easy to kind of look at, at the best of the best, to look at them, to, to say, you know what? I really like what they're doing here. I like what the Spurs have built here. I, I like what the Warriors have done here. Let's take some of that and let's bring it into our business. To, to tag into the music, John Lennon said, uh, the best songwriter is what? The greatest thief. And I, <laughs> I, I think that there's so much out there for us if, if, our, if we are, our eyes are open or our ears are open that we can take and bring back into the business for something meaningful. And so thank you guys very much for having me here today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bradley. No, I appreciate you guys making time for this. And Josh, you drove a couple hours to meet me halfway. And I also like to kind of sink in as maybe just a final note here. You kind of asked that question, uh, Josh, hey, what are my thoughts? If you kind of look out and what are the what are the best teams, I think in general, but in our space, what are they doing to differentiate? And and you, <laughs> when you said that, I was like, oh, what did I tell you? Uh, you know, and you said culture and talent, which I know, shocking. Hardly the first person to say that. But my point on the talent was, and I think we're doing it here, leveraging technology to bring Tim in. You and I still met face-to-face, build that relationship, had lunch, doing it face-to-face. Yet we're also leveraging technology to bring in talent who otherwise wouldn't be able to be here. And I think increasingly we need to, in our industry, say, hey, we need to make our branding or our marketing look better. And instead of saying, well, who do we know in a 12-mile radius who can come in and talk to us? We say, who's the best talent I can get for under 75 bucks an hour in the world? And I think too often we have this old mindset that if I can't meet them face-to-face, we're going to really struggle to work with them. And increasingly, using things like this, where we're using technology to bring in Tim, even though he's two time zones away and a couple thousand miles away, bringing in talent and being okay experimenting with yeah, you might hire a designer and he wasn't that good and you're out 500 bucks. The grand scheme of things, we're all gonna have to get a little bit more comfortable trying new things because I firmly believe if you have the best talent, life gets so much easier. And sometimes that means people are gonna be able to doing jobs that aren't typically the ones that are done six feet away from us. The job's getting done, it's leveraging online to do it, but they're anywhere across the United States. So, um, Kind of with that, Tim, thanks again for making time. Josh, really appreciate it. I I really enjoyed this. And 
I think we uh, we stepped over another great lens to view the changes in here. We'll have to circle back and do one on music as well. That's awesome, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was super fun to do with Bradley Hartman and Josh Johnson. I love the NBA. I love leadership. And I thought it was just a really, really cool idea that Bradley had. Now, remember, if you like that content, make sure to go subscribe to Bradley's podcast. It's called Behind Your Back. And seriously, the content every week will blow your mind if you do any kind of B2B sales, especially with builders. So I hope that this gives you a quick hit of the Firetime podcast that you need to get you through the rest of the summer. Like I said, in the intro. Season three is just around the corner. I can't wait to get started. The first seven episodes are going to cover the seven steps in the retail sales process, and I know you're going to get a ton of value out of it. I've also got something super excited to announce during season three that I just can't wait to share with you. But before I sign off, I again just want to thank you for your support. As I've been traveling this summer, I've just been floored with the feedback that this podcast is getting. It's an honor to do it, and I hope that it helps your company move the needle. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.